0: you are back again, Looking Glass Forum going to a new level, exposing that which cannot be seen when you discuss the topics that are taboo, they're not, not allowed to be discussed. So thanks again for coming back. So here we are, we're back. This is Looking Glass Forum and we have another very interesting topic we have to get into. This uh, this episode, and we're going to try to continue to always press the uh, the line and push the envelope and try to go farther in our ability to understand things uh, in history, uh, hidden history, things that are uh, occult knowledge, things that are not available. I know a lot of these podcasts talk about having some kind of arcane knowledge and discussing some of these topics, but I haven't really, a lot of them have words like uh, theosophy or astrotheology or Illuminati or something on their subject matter and their head in their headings on their podcast but they don't really have any substantive any solid facts any foundational understanding on any of that uh, we do like to provide a lot of clips and a lot of information on this podcast so that we can keep you up to date and you know what the, uh, the the trends are and what's happening out there um, on this particular episode, we need to get into some of the background information that we've been building up to. So we've been building up with a lot, you know, we've been fleshing out a lot of the background historical topics. And we've been kind of building up to this, this central subject as it comes into play here. Because, I mean, if you look at American history, we have only been a nation since, you know, 1776 or so. And there's a lot of controversy now over whether was George Washington really a British spy or a Jesuit agent? Was he really a Freemason? Was George Washington really setting up a new free country? Or was he setting up a, an Illuminati New World Order power center? So that's a lot of people like to talk about um, Washington and those kind of controversial terms, putting him in, in, in the position of being somehow the founder of a, a Jesuit colony, and everyone's fooled by this this idea. So you have a lot of controversy surrounding George Washington. And as I understand it, he was originally a, a British officer, and he became a patriot as a colonist, and he began to want to fight for the freedom and the independence of the colonies, and eventually he was baptized by Pastor Gannon, and I believe Gannon was a Baptist preacher and George Washington was in the Lodge early on. As a young man, the, the Lodge of Freemasonry was really, it came together in Britain in 1717 to become the, uh, the, the Grand Lodge, which was the first time that all of the different Lodges of Freemasonry had been organized into one hierarchy, if you will. So this Grand Lodge in 1717. So you can imagine that the Illuminati came out in 1773, where they were really working hard to take over the lodges, and we'll discuss more about this, but they wanted to illuminize the lodges and turn them into an instrument of hierarchical control that they that they ultimately mastered at the top. But uh, in 1776, the lodges in the United States hadn't been affected by the Illuminati, by the Illuminization that was happening across Europe. Uh, Germany, France, and England were having their lodges uh, carefully or- you know, orchestrated under this new orders of control. But the lodges in the colonies were rather humble, and they were new, and they hadn't been affected by this propaganda and these, this uh the effort to network all the different lodges together by the Illuminati. So in 1776, the lodge that George Washington belonged to would have been uh, three levels the apprentice, the fellow craft level two and then the Master Mason level three and so this was kind of the rudimentary original form of Freemasonry that existed before the Illuminati and the efforts of uh, the Jesuits at Claremont University to create these the higher you have uh, Masonry each day going to 33 degrees when originally um, it was three. So really all this to say that at the time that George Washington was in the law, he was becoming an American patriot, he may well have been. A Freemason, but it, it presupposes that it was a, a, an American patriotic form of the craft that wasn't affected by the machinations of the Illuminati, which were to really get spies and get members of control in each of the lodges so that they could control the lodges and control the activities and orchestrate various events across different lines. So this was an international order, so it didn't matter if it was in France or in Spain or in England or in Russia, these different countries and different monarchs could have problems with each other. But the the Illuminated Craft, the, the you know the esoteric body of Masons that, that were connected throughout these countries could operate together without having the different political problems that the, the different countries would have because of the national you know boundaries and national policies or what have you. So ultimately, American Freemasonry was American, and the effort to throw off the British shackles of tyranny that many Masons in America supported was also supported by Mennonites and Lutherans and Baptists, and um, there were very few Catholics in America at the time, but they probably were there because of the the tyranny of the Inquisition, and maybe there was danger back in Europe Uh, as their status as Catholics. Maybe they were being hunted by the Inquisition. They needed to move to a free land. So it wasn't about uh, your religion at that point. It was about trying to escape to a place that had actual literal independence and political freedom and political liberty. And that's why people came to America. And that's ultimately why they fought the British because they didn't want that to change. They had experienced liberty. They had experienced freedom. Just to They had seen how the, the Indians, the tribes of America lived and how the land was not governed by some kind of overarching dictator who would come and march in his troops or send in his his grand inquisitors to come burn you at the stake. I mean this is the kind of stuff that was happening in South America. I mean the Spanish brought the Inquisition to South America. And the the Inquisitional fire has never burned heretics in North America in America. Well after looking Quebec and Canada, but in South America, the Spanish holdings, they did. That's what happened to a lot of the Inca and Aztec tribes. As soon as those priests and those inquisitors showed up, they, did, they expected to, um, to make the native Indians who were probably weren't even fully dressed to accept their Catholicism or burn at the stake, and that's, and that's what happened. That's how those countries became what they are today. And how they now speak Spanish and how many of them have cathedrals and Roman Catholic missionaries and Jesuit missionaries. The Guarani Indians, the reductions there in Paraguay and Uruguay that the Jesuits operated were all part and parcel of this control of the Spanish uh, Empire, the Spanish monarch over the southern hemisphere there. So in the north, the colonists uh, would throw off their, their monarch and they would eventually start the United States of America. The question of whether George Washington was really uh, an agent of the Jesuits has become something that people like to talk about a lot, and obviously I think that it's very clear that he was not, and that he was a man who was inspired for the freedom of a new nation, and saw a problem with the way the colonists were being treated, and ultimately was a Christian who who stopped going to the Lodge um, and, and really um, had his Bible. And that's what gave him his great success and his great power and his great great, uh, ability to overcome and defeat the enemy and become such a heroic figure in our history in America is because he was a Bible believer. And that's the most important aspect of George Washington's life. So as we're going forward, this episode is going to be a discussion about the Masonic Lodge. Uh, It's the black and the white of it. The good aspects and the bad, and also the fact that we have this important figure that would come and illuminized Masonry. ultimately illuminized masonry from Europe would begin to control the lodges here, and we have to discuss the figure of Albert Pike. He was a grand a grand wizard or a, a grand Masonic lord. I'm not sure what all the, the titular headings, what you know what his titles were, but he was a highest level uh, master of masonry that you could achieve. So he was gonna be a, a grand a uh, grand master of masonry um, of the 33rd degree. Really, as we're going forward, we need to recognize the kind of nuances of what's happened to uh, the American federal government as a process of becoming of uh, these federalized nation states of the United States. Ultimately, the capital of the United States would be Philadelphia. That's where the a lot of the work to create the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, what um, actually took place. But later on. They would actually set up the District of Columbia as a separate political zone, and um, this would become the Washington, D.C. area, and ultimately it was the, the farm of John Carroll. And John Carroll was one of the famous um, Roman Catholic theologians, and ultimately you would have one signer of the Constitution who was a Catholic and John Carroll his huge farm there would become the estate that they would use to create the district of Columbia in the Washington DC area and ultimately the capital there would become an iconic representation a really an identical if not upgraded version of the the basilica of St Peter there and the Vatican so you can have that huge dome made famous there in Rome And it's going to be copied here in the Capitol building. And it's going to be a kind of an upgraded version of that kind of dome complex with the same kind of pillars and the Greco-Roman architecture. And the same kind of headings over the windows and everything very similar to the the Vatican there. And I don't think that was the original tent. But ultimately, you can see the influence of the Pope coming into play there little by little over the course of time and building a lot of these monuments. So ultimately, there would be a huge obelisk you know, set up there in Washington, DC in front of the, the, the dome of the Capitol, which is very similar to how it is there in the Vatican. And um, this process of, of having the influence of the Georgetown set, as far as the, the Georgetown university, the Jesuit university, there becoming affiliated with the Carroll family. And uh, as far as the control that the, the Carroll farm, John Carroll's farm would, Uh, becoming so central in setting up the District of Columbia and the federal seat of power for the capital of the United States of America. And obviously that was something that was coming into place over the course of time from 1776, when they would um, actually get the Constitution completely ratified and finished. And uh, they would ultimately shift the capital from Philadelphia to this new quasi-political zone, It kind of reminds me of an international site, an international territory, kind of like uh, the city of London proper inside London City, and just how the Vatican is set up as its own international zone inside of Rome, so Washington, D.C. is its own district, if you will, of of, um, international control within the United States. Ultimately, the original construct of the Republic was that each of the the states themselves had their own uh, sovereignty as nation-states, their own independence, and they would send resources and send representatives to Philadelphia, to the capital, uh, for the federal uh, legislature, and uh, ultimately this this power was usurped from the states over to the federal government. The federal government doesn't really have any real territory or any real land or any real um, authority, but it's really just taking control as imperial control over the sovereignty and the authority of the states who were subordinated and submitted, and this happened during the Civil War. So this is the kind of time period we're getting into historically. We're kind of getting into this time here where the the United States was becoming an independent republic um, that had rebelled from the authority of the monarch, King George III, and the people of the United States set up their own independent government of self-governance by the people and for the people, And it's been a process of slowly asserting European control over these original colonies. And that's what we're seeing over time. We're seeing this original republic dissolve the authority that was granted to each of the citizens um, to say that the the citizenry was the decider of the government and who was the one in the ballot box to choose how the government would be directed. This authority of each of the independent citizens is being dissolved. And it's becoming a centralized autocratic tyranny once again there in Washington, D.C. So this is a good place to segue. We have this very interesting clip here, and uh, it's going to be added in with the podcast information, so you should watch the entire, the entire video. But it has to do with a lot of the esoteric uh, Freemasonic designs of Washington, D.C. So let's take a listen.
1: After reading the lost symbol, I was intrigued with Washington, D.C., It's a city overflowing with esoteric symbolism. Zooming in from space as we can in Google Earth, let me point out a few landmarks. Here's the White House, Capitol Building, Washington Monument, Jefferson Memorial, Lincoln Memorial, and the Pentagon just across the Potomac. Rick Campbell has uncovered much of the underlying geometry of the city on his informative site, DC he sees the following diagram in the streets and interconnection of monuments. The geometry consists of a pentagram over a cube, all contained within an overarching pyramid. Each one of these shapes carries a meaning we'll be exploring. We'll see later in Egypt how the pentagram symbolizes the microcosm, which is everything in the universe, human scale or smaller. The cube is a recurrent esoteric symbol for the body that we'll be running into all over the world. I found a pair of 3-4-5 triangles between the cube and the pyramid. Turning off the cube layer, you see the rectangle surrounding the White House is also made up of a pair of interlocking triangles, this time with 5-12-13 proportions. 3-4-5 and
2: 5-12-13 are the first two Pythagorean triplets. As
1: you'll begin to appreciate, Pythagorean knowledge figures prominently in decoding this mystery. Where have we seen an unfinished pyramid before? On the back of the dollar bill, of course. If we illuminate the DC pyramid with the same all-seeing eye of providence, we are directed to a specific building. Is this the eye of providence we are looking at? or its older incarnation as the Eye of Horus. Either way, what is behind the All-Seeing Eye of the Sun? It's the headquarters of Scottish Freemasonry, which goes by many names, including the Supreme Council, Mother Council of the World, and House of the Temple. This building is loaded with Egyptian symbolism, with a 13-step unfinished pyramid on top, just like on the dollar bill and two giant sphinxes flank the entrance out front. The architect John Russell Pope modeled the 1911 building after the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, now a part of Turkey. As one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it served as tomb of King Mausolus, which is where we get the word mausoleum. The house of the temple correspondingly serves as tomb of Albert Pike, Sovereign Grand Commander, Confederate General, and the most famous Freemason of his times. Pike wrote Morals and Dogma, the handbook formerly given to new members up until 1974, which details the 33 ranks of Freemasonry. The House of the Temple is where the climax in the lost symbol takes place. Campbell shows how the elevation was designed ad quadratum, which is Latin for by the square. Ad Quadratum is a sacred design template we'll see employed in the District of Columbia itself and at Chartres Cathedral. The sunburst above the entry is at the center of the square, and the top corner marks the symbolic apex of the unfinished pyramid. The bottom corner presumably marks the crypt where Pike is interred. Scottish Freemasons are really into the number 33. There are 33 columns in the House of the Temple that are 33 feet high. This is the place where a hardworking initiate can attain the highest 33rd degree from the 33 members of the Supreme Council. 33rd degree Masons are often found in positions of power. Many Presidents of the United States were Freemasons. The Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania has a permanent exhibit featuring the portrait and signature of each of these Presidents, with a record of their Masonic careers. It is difficult to verify Masonic membership because some members do not make their involvement a matter of public record, however each Lodge keeps its own records. I find it interesting that George Washington, Harding, Eisenhower, Carter, and the younger Bush all chose to be sworn into the office of the President with a hand on this Masonic Bible dating from 1770. One has to be male and believe in a supreme being to seek membership as a Scottish Freemason. They insist their fraternity is not a religion, although atheists are ineligible for membership. Freemasonry is not a secret society, but members are strongly admonished under pain of death not to reveal core secrets. Much of what happens inside the House of the Temple has been pieced together by outside researchers in recent years. Members can rise to the 32nd degree through hard work and study, but only those selected by the Supreme Council may attain the highest 33rd degree. Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra have dredged up the most interesting connections between the Scottish Freemasons and NASA. Here is Cape Canaveral at Kennedy Space Center. These are the two launch pads where all the Apollo and Space Shuttle missions left Earth. Here is the single runway, Runway 33. Of all the vectors they could have chosen for the strip, why did NASA choose 33 degrees west of north? These examples show that the Freemasons and NASA are obsessed with this number. I'm wondering what's so special about 33. Where else does this number appear? Jesus is said to have performed 33 miracles and to have died at age 33. Perhaps this is no coincidence. The Bible says King David, father of the famous Solomon who built the first temple in Jerusalem, reigned for 33 years. In the Kabbalah, or Jewish mysticism, there are ten Sephiro in the tree of life, plus another hidden one called Doth. Adding the 22 paths between Sephiro brings the total up to the magic 33. Sound implausible? Think of it this way. Our bodies resonate 33 octaves above the Earth's fundamental vibration. This fits with the ancient Hermetic motto, as above, so below. I find it incredible that the UN emblem divides the Earth into 33 sectors. This has to be more than coincidental. The human spinal column appropriately has 33 vertebrae if you count the fused bones in the lower spine individually. 33 might very well be built into the architecture of the universe. For further confirmation, let's take a look at the Great Seal of the United States of America as shown on the back of a $1 bill. Let's start with the obverse side of the Great Seal. That's the side with the eagle. Most important to our current line of inquiry, let's count the number of feathers on the wings. The left wing has 33 feathers, and the right wing has
0: 32. We'll just leave off the very interesting discussion right there. So this is Scott Onstott, and if you look on the um, on YouTube, Secrets in Plain Sight, He has a whole series, and he goes around the world, actually, to Cairo and to all types of different cities and shows the the esoteric geometry and the sacred geometry that's built into buildings. Um, He does some of the Greek Hellenistic temples. He does a lot of work. But this is really just to kind of zoom in on Washington, D.C., and take a closer look into the architecture of Washington, D.C. So when you get a chance, you should go back and, and watch the video link that I provided. But this is really just... Bringing to light, that's um, kind of like a a softball way to handle the question of Albert Pike. Kind of a, a sugar-coated way to look at the historical account. So we're going to get more into the historical record. He was uh, Albert Pike was a Confederate general, so he was a man who took the side of the Confederacy in the South. And uh, I don't know if, if, if what the position was that or what his angle was there. He, he was also characterized as having started the Ku Klux Klan, which is the Knights of the KKK. So, this is the white Knights of the South here who are gonna remain, you know, their white racist, the famous KKK. And of course, as we, we characterized before, as we pointed out, the letter K is the 11th letter in the alphabet. So, 11, 11, 11 KKK. in in Geometria adds up to 33. So that's the connection between uh, the Lodge of Freemasonry and the KKK. And you have to recognize that at this time we're getting into the 1860s and the 1850s. At this point in history the, the efforts to illuminize uh, the lodges of Freemasonry to, to, to get them all under control, to stack them all up in an orderly way so they're not independent lodges and in separate communities but they're all tied into this hierarchical system of control that the Illuminati had been setting up in Germany and in France and England. Um, that was the beginning to settle in here in the United States. So these these lodges are now going to be subject to, to chapters and subject to the Grand Lodge, and so that's how you're going to have the rise of the Scottish Rite, of Freemasonry that has 33 degrees. And this is what uh, Albert Pike was carefully crafting and carefully building. He was setting into into place the the new order of the Scottish Rite. Of 33 degrees, you know this new this new esoteric brotherhood was being set in place of where the old uh, continental Freemasonry had been. So there had been the old Order of Continental Freemasonry in 1776 with three degrees, and now this new by the 1860s, by the time of the Civil War, this new powerhouse of control of international control. So this, this international brotherhood of Freemasonry was going to be perpetuated in its ranks and in its phalanx of, of political and economic control across Europe and across Russia and now across America, too, with Albert Pike. So we're going to really take a closer look at his um, discussions and his letters with Mazzini, who was a, I believe he was an Italian a Freemason, a high-level, high-ranking Freemason of the Illuminati, the Illuminized Fraternity. So that, that, that's the point where you get really high up into Freemasonry, and you become one of their soldiers, you become a knight of their high orders, and you're now going to be commanded by these other areas of Europe. These other Grand Lodges are going to be, begin to articulate their authority and their control over whatever your mission as a Freemason is, it, it's obviously not to just go and knit a sweater in the back, but it's to go out and to, to take exploits and to conquer the the the, the territory, conquer the, the the realm, if you will, for the for the cause of Freemasonry and for their for their order. And it's interesting just to let. The, um, let the fellow point out to us in that video in Secrets in Plain Sight that Albert Pike did write Morals and Dogma. We'll have to look at that book later. It's, it's, a, it's a hard book to get a hold of. Not many people can, can get a hold of that book, so it's, it's important to take a look and to see what Albert Pike was really all about. And obviously he had a, a statue, a huge uh, of statue, in Washington D.C., and it was recently torn down last year by the efforts of the Antifa, the Black Lives Matter people, and the the uh, they were going around tearing down statues, and they thought it a good idea to tear down Albert Pike statue. Which uh, at the, the the president at the time, President Trump, said that he would have it put back up. I'm not sure if that was a politically good idea. Um, and ultimately, I think that that statue sat there for a century or so. So I think that for them to tear it down right now was very uh, tells us a lot. It's a it tells it's a telltale sign of the fact that they're trying to now quiet down and take out of plain sight. This is a video called Secrets in Plain Sight. They're trying to take these secrets down so that it's not so obvious what the order of control it really is. On this topic, we have a lot to say. We have a lot of different different uh, information we want to offer into this podcast, and we have a lot of different points of view that really are going to begin to scale up our understanding of the aspects of history that are not immediately apparent, so that you, when you begin to look at history, you can begin to read between the lines and see a little more clearly the different geopolitical forces that were at work, the different kind of... Environment uh, progressing through history as we advance technologically and scientifically, and with medicine and all the the different areas of human life, we advance with our ability to study and to develop tools to uh, to learn Uh, our instruments, our instrumentality for looking into space or looking into the mitochondria of our DNA is becoming more and more sophisticated. Our processing power is becoming, is combining and combining each year as the processor size gets smaller and smaller. So, really, to kind of enlighten us in this subject of how the esoteric fraternities and how the backdrop of spy agencies and the bureaucracy of large institutions uh, and, and the, the imperialism of the last 200 years and how it's affected our lives today. We have to bring in this discussion with geopolitics and empire. And they have a fascinating discussion, so let's let them kind of characterize this discussion for us a little bit.
3: And so I wanted to start by talking about something that you've been writing about, for years, and this has also been for me one of my primary uh, research focuses. Uh, personally, I've been collecting books on this subject and reading about it for decades now. And that topic is global governance, which is a euphem- euphemism for world government or global government or even world state. Uh, there's a few books in my background. I know you have a big library, but I've got books scattered in boxes all across the planet. Uh, but I you know just just to show you know when we talk about this subject. It's it's not crazy. It's all documented, uh, you know, well over uh, a century. You know, I've got books from you know 1942 talking about post-war worlds. I know you write a lot about you know here's H.G. Wells um, open conspiracy where he talked all about this stuff. You know, the idea of world uh, government, um, just more you know uniting of nations at the top. It says world government. So you know here they talk about ruling the world, uh, an international constitution to rule the, the world end of the nation-state, right, and the formation of these regional kind of unions, uh, from from European Union to World Union, uh, and even, you know, uh, the late, great Dr. Robert Pastor, I think I had the last interview with him before he passed away in January 2014, I interviewed him in December of 2013, the North American idea, or North American Union, so, um, you know, for me this is a big enchilada, uh, I find that all other events that we often discuss are in the service of attempting to bring about Uh, world government, whether it's the threat of nuclear war, so-called global warming, so-called international terrorism, and now so-called domestic extremism or terrorism, global financial crisis, so-called global pandemics, and, you know, most of these problems are manufactured or, or, you know, prolonged by the same elites whose essential goal is centralized control uh, of the planet. Uh, so you've written many articles on this sub- subject. There are many tangents one can go off on. There are many individuals, organizations, uh, everything from Cecil Rhodes and the round- Roundtable Group, CFR, think tanks, foundations like Rockefeller, Carnegie, um, and their projects like the EU and Euro. So as best as you can, you're know, pulling together all of your knowledge and insight, could you give us kind of a concise or succinct tour through and summary of Uh, the striving for world government as you've followed it over the years. Uh, Yeah,
4: absolutely. And there are so many entry points to discuss this. Um, So I'm trying to think to myself as I was listening to you speak, what would be the most useful way of evaluating this topic for the uh, minds of your audience? And I think that um, a paradox is a good place. And there's a paradox that recently arose um, with Vladimir Putin's January 2020 um, speech, where he first uh, called for a new security architecture, founded a, and also a new system. He actually called for a new system on January 15th in his State of the Union uh, in Russia, uh, founded upon the UN principles and the UN Charter. Um, and he said we need to reestablish and reinforce the world security, uh, the the UN Security Council, and we need the UN Charter to be a governing uh, driver of how. A world system of politics should be organized. This was repeated by Xi Jinping uh, even more recently. Yesterday, in his his speech at Davos, he recently said, "You know, we need um, a system with the UN Charter enshrined." And uh, a lot of attacks occurred because a lot of people who like generally the the multipolar alliance, they like the the um, the idea of win-win cooperation of the Russia-China uh, uh, partnership which has really, really taken off, especially since 2015, when the Eurasian Economic Union uh, had their integration tree, the first of several, with the Belt and Road Initiative. So a lot of people who who sensed that this is an alternative to the unipolar system of the West, of the transatlantic, they were a bit confused, because they're like, oh wait, are these crypto-globalists? This whole time, was I rooting for Xi Jinping and Putin, but they're actually crypto-globalists who are fooling me? and this whole thing is a charade, maybe the, the US military is not actually engaged in a full in a full spectrum dominance, uh, encirclement of Russia and China's perimeter, maybe that's not true. Um, and, and I had a lot of people, a lot of writers, uh, a lot of readers uh, write into me. When you look at the UN Charter, one of the things that's very clear is that it's premised around the, the respect for the sovereignty of nation states. It's not like the League of Nations. The League of Nations was something which was designed in its fabric, in its constitution after World War I to supersede uh, nation states, to render them impotent and null and void by by basically giving the rights to uh, controlling economic as well as military responsibilities to an unelected bureaucracy of specialists would be operating through the Bank of International Settlements that was brought online by 1930, but then earlier on, the Bank of England was the sort of controlling financial mechanism, um, and the League of Nations was supposed to be the one world government. So the the UN originally, under the idea of people like uh, Henry Wallace, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Wendell Wilkie, many of the other um, American statesmen of that time, of the 1940s, they were...
5: Anti-imperial, they all they they consciously enshrined the respect for sovereignty of nations in in the charter. Uh, the idea of
4: cooperation uh, in order to solve international problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character, and and promoting and encouraging the respect for human rights, um, that was designed to be the center for the harmonizing of the actions of nations and the attainment of these common ends. So it's it's a very different idea of cooperation and and. That what Roosevelt wanted to do was to take the 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 war on the the on Wall Street, the war on these great reset um, bankers of London who wanted to have their great reset in 1933 under the London Conference. He he basically sabotaged all of that, and he reinstated the he reinstated the American Constitution as he brought bankers from Wall Street to prison, in front of he brought them in front of trial during the court Commission, and he then created state credit through the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation after re, after regulating the banks and breaking up the, the too-big-to-fail banks of Wall Street that created the Great Depression. So he did all of these things, uh, which was always a political fight, it was never easy. It was always up against the most powerful fascist-sponsoring um, financiers of the world and he wanted to take that example and then make it available for every nation that had been colonized by the British Empire, which had been formerly the only one world government on the world for hundreds of years. It was really people before the 19th century. I mean, everyone understood that the, the real enemy, it wasn't communism versus capitalism, it was empire versus nation state, and people recognized that the American Revolution, what it what it gave it the the power was that it was a new type of society governed around the idea of the consent of the governed, the inalienable rights of every individual that is what gave authority to to the laws of the nation. Um, That that was never done before 1776. So the economic policies that arose out of the American experience, um, which was really driven by Benjamin Franklin, some of his his proteges like Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, they created an economic system premised around um, the rights of, of every sovereign nation to have a national bank, productive credit, protective tariffs to favor its local development of its industry so that they can stand on their own two feet economically and not be reliant on some power, powerful leviathan like the city of London always was.
0: So, let's just take a second and um, just pause the interesting discussion, but I think that it's it's important to understand that at that time, before we had this kind of economic model of the, of the world where we have to a pit capitalism against communism we um we had a world that he described which was independent nation state versus imperialism and imperialism didn't recognize the boundaries of other nations. It just understood that if it conquered uh, the territory and stabbed its flag into the beach, that it was now part of their territory. And imperialism was kind of a, a juggernaut that could take over uh, areas without respect for the boundaries and the uh, the accountability in, in, in the um the treaties of, of other nations. So this kind of imperialism, this internationalism before the period of communism took on the form of the what we'll call uh, continental Freemasonry, which is this hierarchical Freemasonry that, that began to become uh, woven together into a system by the Illuminati. So at 1773, the Illuminati was coming out and was hard at work, And all the way up into uh, the eighteen eighteen thirteen, into that period, the Illuminati would continue to exist. um, Basically, weaving together all the different fraternal orders, all the different esoteric clubs, and uh, all the different branches and lodges of Freemasonry would be orchestrated and 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 fit into their system of control across the world and so this is how imperialism would take a political effect within society and independent nation-states had to look out for this kind of malign influence that was creeping in the the political atmosphere of these secret brotherhoods so as we go forward we have to recognize that this uh, these independent, our Freemason clubs with three degrees were going to be superseded by this highly organized, powerful instrumentality of the Illuminati, which would begin to you, you come into these different fraternal orders and basically regiment the, the different men in those orders from three degrees all the way up to 33, at which point they would have become men who were given industries, given power, get, you know, helped to create banks, helped to create powerful they there were men like Albert Pike, who were going to be Confederate generals, who were very wealthy, who would become the tycoons of the next generation. And they would be using the resources and, and advancing the, the wall of hegemony and political power of imperialism over and against the independence of the nation state. So this was going to be a way that King George and the powers of the European banking uh, cartels could begin to assert influence over the United States of America. So let's get back to the discussion here.
4: A powerful Leviathan, like the city of London always was, uh, as the the mother that would then give them some crumbs, if need be. Um, So this was better understood back then. Today it's been really scrubbed out of our history books and people don't know how to think about that fight. But this is what Franklin Roosevelt and his allies tapped into when they configured configured the UN. Now immediately, he died early in April 12th, 1945, all of his allies either died early, like Harry Hopkins, uh, w- uh, Wendell Wilkie died early. Um, Wallace was you know, destroyed politically, It was called the commune, a lot of them were all expunged and purged from US intelligence, the OSS was disbanded, and essentially all of the Churchill um, You know, the deep state department sort of took over control at that moment and started converting all of these Bretton Woods institutions that had originally been designed to be instruments for providing long-term development aid for nations to industrialize and stand on their own two feet in Africa, South America, and beyond. That was what the good neighbor policy was all about. That was all abandoned. And these things were increasingly turned, as we saw, into instruments for economic terrorism and subversion of national development throughout the 1950s, 60s, 70s to today. So today we're, we're at a place where you have sort of the, re, the realization that the system that we've, the, the security architecture, the financial architecture that has been sort of guiding the world, especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, is coming to an end, that it's a big bubble, it's a chimera. Um, we're going to see a, a meltdown of the financial system and it's just been kept, they've been kicking the can down the, the line a little bit by just printing more money to bail out a little bit more, but. It's it's completely unsustainable, and that's why the great the great reset agenda was brought online recently, summer last year, from the World Economic Forum. And this is this is you can't really understand what COVID 19 as a psychological operation is really about if you don't have that sense of how both of these things were coordinated from the top in order to keep people at homes, keep social movements relatively diffused and confused, so that as the system is being reset, they're able to stay in the driver's seat, the the same oligarchs that created this problem decades ago, a tool to subvert nation-states. So it's two different worlds, two different systems. We're going to have, obviously, a world we can't, we're 8 billion, 9 billion people soon. We're not going to be able to live in a world where everybody's ignoring their neighbor. So you're going to have to have some form of way to moderate your relationships with the family of other nations and people. But is it going to be one that's based upon an operating system that forces People to conform their behavior to the will of an unelected bureaucracy of technocrats at the top, right? Or is it going to be one that actually respects the right for everybody to have their own
3: developmental pathways? I have a question then, um, because I've been thinking about this and I've had guests on. uh, You know, we wonder where is this, you know, geographically, the the driving force, and you know. Uh, there's a line, there's a Rubicon we can't go beyond, right? Like, who who are these globalists? I like when Catherine Austin Fitz said, uh, Mr. Global, right? You know, we we can identify some of their front people, you know, Bilderbergers, Trilateral Commission, uh, like you said, Wall Street, City of London, um, you know, Saudi lobby, Israeli lobby, and all these people. Uh, But it keeps coming up time and time again, you know, the British Empire, or the remnants of the British Empire, so who would you say, at least in the, in the West, where's the seat uh, of this driving force for this, you know, Western New World Order? Is it still uh, the British Empire, or the remnants of yeah, the British Empire? I'm, yeah, that's a great question, and
4: um, it is, it, in, in so many ways. But the, but the reason why people have a difficult time with this is because the British Empire... Isn't what they thought it was. They have a certain cartoonish idea that they've been given from media, from their popular history books, of what the British Empire was. is a bunch of, you know, stuffy, red shirt wearing, red coat wearing, uh, you know, militarists out, you know, suppressing India with their military power, and the sun never sets. You know, you got these ah, sort of romantic ideas of what this thing was, and that's not. It's not at all like that. Um, the empire itself was always one an empire of the mind. It was an empire of intelligence agencies, British intelligence, going back to the days of, uh, of Lord Shelburne, after that Lord Palmerston, and you, 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 you have um, a certain tradition of recognizing how to utilize um, a prof- a technique of profiling your victims, how to, how to manipulate Byzantine intrigue. There's a certain science and set of tactics that are passed down um, from one generation to another to maintain a continuity of system. You have also a banking empire. I mean, part of this thing has been through, especially in the last 350 so years, uh, the city of London has been the center, the nerve center uh, of the world's financial architecture. Um, That didn't That's still the case today. It's not this this is this didn't disappear somehow after World War Two, when apparently, as the myth was was given to us, the American empire arose to replace the British Empire, which became, you know, this, it, it, it agreed to just dissolve its former kingdoms and and uh, let the uh, the strong young young up-and-coming republic become the new empire. No, that that's that was a mythology cooked up by the enemies of the republic. Um, but it, it's it's been a banking empire. It was an empire of a of um, penetration of organized corruption in every nation it would operate through. So to be able to create, let's say for the, for the sake of India, here's a, a good paradox is, you know, they were, how was the British Empire with only, what was it, maybe 20,000 at max uh, soldiers able to subvert for generations the entire Indian society, which had, what, had 300 million or so, more people even. Um, it was once the, the most powerful economy um, it, up until the 18th century, along with China. How was such a small number of, of of British soldiers able to suppress that peop- that, that quantity of people, a powerful tradition, thousands of year-old culture. And it was through understanding how to how to profile the weaknesses of that the cultural matrix, matrix and amplify, it. let's say, for example, the caste system so that they were able to create an organized structure of the Brahmins that they favored that would then self-organize um, that society and self-control that society, and then on the other hand, subvert that society's capacity to Developed their own manufacturing, so they used to be leaders in textiles. That was all subverted through the opium wars uh, with China. That whole period, and the Indian
5: textiles were consciously destroyed through free trade as Britain took control in London of,
4: of the production centers of textiles, leaving India to produce pretty much opium, which was very good good for the British because they then sent that to to China to keep the Chinese dragon sort of at bay and
2: and weakened spiritually. That was ca- it was calculated. And in so doing, they created triads, you know, because who would do the work in China? So they had
4: the creation of sort of, you know, Chinese secret societies, triads were, were formed that would, would be self-organized syndicates that would be then obedient and, and take directions from their British masters. We, we have the same thing inside of the United States with the formation of the KKK under Albert Pike, right, who was also the guy who reorganized the Grand Master Freemason, who reorganized Scottish Rite Freemasonry after the Civil War. Uh, He set up the KKK as a domestic terrorist group under the service of Mazzini and Palmerston in London. Why did he do that? It was to stop Reconstruction, right? To spread uh, just an architecture of chaos and fear to to break the Lincoln-Ulysses S. Grant program for real, full Reconstruction after the Civil War. Um, This is what was revived later on under Woodrow Wilson and McKinley. Uh, Not McKinley. After McKinley died, you had Woodrow Wilson and uh, Theodore Roosevelt who revived this. So, I think it, it's important to see the empire of the mind of banking of, uh, and, and, and to see it as something that's direct, directly continuous as a process. When you look at some of these inner families that tend to intermarry at the top, you know, they can come and go. Some of them do
5: stay there for a long time. And the point is, the, it's an artificial system that's, set that, that's ethically premised around the idea that your
4: right to rule is, is based upon your blood, This goes back to ancient times. We've seen this philosophy that, you know, if you're born into the right family, that's what gives you the right to rule. If you're born into the wrong family, that's what gives you the right to be a slave. Um, Aristotle lays it out in his ethics, his Nicomachean ethics, right, that there's one set of moralities for the slave and one set of moralities for the master, and that's how society should be organized. Um, Plato disagreed with that. Plato, the guy who came before that, was always, no, look look at the, you know, look at a slave child in the Mino dialogue, would be able to talk correctly, even though that slave child did not have access to the the elite education. They were able to be more creative and more intelligent by doubling the the surface area of a square. Just purely through their own powers of thought. Even more so than the the slave master Mino himself, that slave boy was able to make that discovery that the slave master couldn't do. So the slave master was intellectually inferior and spiritually inferior in power, even though he might have known more stuff than 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 that boy was in that dialogue. So um, what you've got is something which goes back to the days of ancient Babylon, ancient Rome. And if you can only understand this thing when you start looking at the, these transition moments and these battles. So when did Greece become submissive, become an empire, right? What was, what was Socrates battling against when they, when, they, when they killed him through the Democratic Party, right? They, they, that's what brought him to trial and forced him to drink the hemlock as a crime for corrupting the minds of the youth and undermining the, the uh, doctrines of the state. Um, it, it was at the moment when he was resisting just by simply asking questions and getting people to utilize their powers of mind. Um, the, the core um, assumptions and and truths of the experts, the sophists, who wanted to manage the society through the art of eloquent speech without any concern for truth. Um, and this is what that society was turning into under Pericles. We saw what Greece was turning into, right? It had backstabbed its, its allies, it had basically started uh, treating its allies formally as now colonies, and um, and it was a real slide into deep corruption that resulted in that society not coming back from it. Uh, the same thing for, for Rome, right? When when Cicero took a stand to try to preserve the Roman Republic, um, and Mark Anthony ultimately cut off his head, what was Cicero doing? He was reviving the Socratic principles. All of his, his dialogues are written as dialogues, as Platonic dialogues, and he saw himself as a continuing, 250 years later, the tradition... Of Plato and the Academy, um, and when he was killed, just like when Socrates was killed, that was sort of the shifting for the Roman Republic to become now the Empire, and a lot of the same families that were running things like the cults of Delphi in Greece, the Apollo of Delphi, that was tied very closely to a lot of the cults uh, that ran the banking, the financial uh, structures as well of Persia, of Babylon. These these sort of just migrated using the same techniques of you know forming controlled, acceptable ideological uh, cages that people could be a part of, you know, you could worship whatever cult you wanted, but it couldn't they had a problem when Christianity arose, and all of a sudden there was an idea that, no maybe there's actually one God, maybe there's one morality, maybe there's not one morality for the master and one for the slave, maybe there's like one higher universal truth that we all must submit to, and that that was incompatible with the pagan system of the empire
0: So, you can see that We have a fascinating discussion right there, and it goes on for some time, and I've added the link, and you should definitely take the time and go and and listen to the entire thing. But according to that kind of principle that he lays in there regarding the master and the slave, it's interesting to me that if you look in the Torah and you look at the life of Moses, Moses was born a slave, and he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was, from that point on, brought into Pharaoh's household as, a, as one of the heirs and was raised as a governor, as a master. So he was a, a literal slave who became a master and through these Socr- Socratic principles was taught everything that was necessary to run an empire and it's, it's obvious that there isn't any kind of definitive difference between uh, one person or another. It's really just based on the character that's within them. And if they're taught to be prince, then they'll be a prince. And if they're taught to be a slave, they'll be a slave. But that's neither here nor there. We really needed to get back into this discussion because he really couldn't get around the, uh, the work of, of Albert Pike at this point. He had to kind of point it out in his kind of historical, the research that he was laying out there for us. He had to point out that the, the, the preeminence of Albert Pike, even though it's not somebody that you might have ever heard of, you have to understand that he was instrumental in turning this country, the United States of America, from a republic into an empire. And I think that's where we stand today if we look at the situation. And it goes back to the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and this whole time frame that we're talking about here in the 1800s through the 1850s and through this time of the Civil War. And I would point out, too, that at Yale University would have its um, famous Order of Skull and Bones established at Yale University in 1833. And uh, shortly after that, we would be dealing with the Civil War. And um, as we had pointed out before, it had everything to do with the William Morgan affair. When uh, William Morgan was publishing a book uh, about the Freemasons and was subsequently killed, Captain Morgan. And uh, he was done away with. And the police and the courts, being full of Freemasons were uh, were making sure that it was the whole issue was secreted away, but it was the public had seen the issue and much was written about it at the time, so that there was a huge political backlash against Freemasonry. There was an anti-Masonry party, and um, a lot of Freemasons left Masonry, and uh, ultimately, this was right around the time when the Skull and Bones would be established. And so, this is the this is contemporary with Albert Pike's. Uh, you know his history, his life, and um, he would set up the Palladian Rite, which was a secret rite, and it's discussed much. If you go into the kind of grimoires and the occult history of it all, the there was a Palladian Rite that was supposed to rule over the rest of the 33, 33 degrees of, of Scottish Rite Masonry, and of course, on the other side of it, you have the York Rite, which was the British side. In Britain, and in France, you had Grand Orient Freemasonry, and the Grand Orient Freemasonry was particularly uh, deadly, if I remember my history correctly. And all these different orders uh, were going to be ultimately put together into a single phalanx, a single military knighthood uh, under the Illuminati. So. This is kind of the history that we're trying to flesh out here. This is what we're trying to establish. And it was interesting that he would go back and talk about the opium wars with China. That's how they really conquered the powerful military and economic might of the Chinese, the Mandarin dynasties at the time, is with the opium. And they were able to just take in opium and take out silver. Shiploads of opium in, shiploads of silver out. And it's it's some interesting note that William Russell... The founder of the Order of Skull and Bones at Yale, there in 1833, his family, the Russell family, was an elite, rich, blue blood family, and their background uh, wealth was through these shipping channels. And their family shipping business was one of the main, uh, one of the central shipping uh, businesses that was used to bring in opium into into China and and from India and to help set up this ability of the British Empire to control and to addict and to manipulate other nations as a policy. And ultimately this kind of idea of piracy and um, controlling the high seas and admiralty law, which is the law of the seas. And this whole idea is really what is ensconced in the central theme of the Order of Skull and Bones with their Skull and Bones um, flag, the pirate flag regalia and their whole establishment as as knights. And ultimately, I think that they become knights of Malta. And there's this whole history uh, behind imperialism, and it has to do with Europe, the, the monarchs there, the kings, and the dynasties of the kings of Europe, of France, of Spain, of Portugal, of England. And the idea that those kings were to be coronated and established and blessed by the Holy Roman Empire or by the Vatican. So the prelates of the Pope would come and they would sprinkle the water they would do the coronation. They would have the trumpets and the feast. And then you were made the King and you were chosen and you were divinely uh, inspired as a King and divinely chosen as a King because of the power of the Vatican and the Pope. So this is the kind of sense of religious imperialism, the imperialism of these competing kings over these different languages and different uh, areas of the world really have to do with the geopolitical empire of the Pope. So as we're establishing these kind of themes, we're trying to set into motion your understanding that at the time of 1776, when George Washington and his men at Valley Forge set out to, Break away from the control of the imperialism of King George III. King George III was the Pope's man. He was somebody who was assisted by the Jesuits and he was chosen and coronated as the king, the divine, divinely and rightful king of the Pope. So that's really the power that they were trying to throw off. That's why they went across the river and attacked. On Christmas Night, because the it was a, really a, a contest between the Protestant Bible believing fight for independence and freedom away from the bands of the tyranny of the monarchs of the papacy, who were really the different crowned heads of Europe, were really controlled by Rome and the religious uh, imperialism that they established from there. So, when we're really getting into the history of Albert Pike, we need to recognize what kind of authority and what kind of power he represented. So, when he established himself as a knight, then you have to understand that he represented the old order of landlords and kings and dukes and duchesses and the idea that there was a nobility and then there was the serfs. And he was um, a knight of these orders of this imperial power so that he served his masters and that everyone who was not in their in their army, in their, in their service of these knights, if you were, were really just serfs and really just the heretics and the, and the outcasts who could be trodden down with horses and, and, and burned at the stake. And they were really just nobodies and they had no legal right or standing. And they were subjects and, and not citizens. And that's what America was all about. It was, it was a fight for the freedom and the political liberty of the people to create their own government to have religion or not have it, to have certain holy days or, or not have them, to, you know, to study, to learn, to to grow in advance and pursue life as you would freely do and not under the the, the, the assumed authority of bloodlines. And as it's our kind of custom on this podcast, we're going to use the interpretations and the research and the Scholarship of others to really establish the point that we're trying to make here. So I find it useful I'm going to go back again to the fuel project and just use a little excerpt from that He does some quotations and he does a good kind of interpretation a good way of presenting the idea and the power of symbolism on in the occult fraternities. We'll let this help frame our understanding
6: Occultists around the world believe that once a symbol is created it acquires power of its own, and that the more secret it is, the more power it has. They believe the greatest power of all is created in the symbol if the uninitiated never discovers that it even exists. This reminds us of the Jonathan Livingston Siegel phenomenon that I mentioned previously, where demons seem to assign themselves to positions created by men to be worshipped. So someone can create a symbol with the wicked intention that it should represent something diabolical, and then because of their motives in creating it, The symbol indeed takes on that power which has been imbued into it. It's nothing less than witchcraft. But if secrecy gives strength to the power of the symbols, they need to give them double meanings to help with the concealment. Albert Pike, a 19th century 33 degree mason, wrote an authoritative and infamous book revealing the secrets of the craft called Morals and Dogma. In it he writes... Masonry, like all the religions, all the mysteries, hermeticism, and alchemy, conceals its secrets from all except the adepts and sages, or the elect, and uses false explanations and misinterpretations of its symbols to mislead those who deserve only to be misled, to conceal the truth, which it calls light, from them, and to draw them away from it. The adepts, sages, or elect refers to those of the 33rd degree or above, the so-called Illuminated Ones. Morals and Dogma was never intended for the eyes of the lower Masons or the profane non-Masons. The title page of the book asks that anyone in possession of a copy should return it to the Lodge upon his withdrawal or death, so that it would never reach a mass audience. Copies have, however, crept out of the Lodges, and its contents are available for public consumption. Albert Pike says of the symbols within Freemasonry, Part of the symbols are displayed there to the initiate, but he is intentionally misled by false interpretations. It is not intended that he shall understand them, but it is intended that he shall imagine he understands them. He then goes on to say, There must always be a commonplace interpretation for the mass of initiates, of the symbols that are eloquent to the adepts. Pure Pike clearly outlines that every occult symbol Freemasons use should have a false public meaning in order to keep the true darker meaning hidden. When non-Masons or even lower level Freemasons ask about doctrines or rituals, they will be misdirected with the false interpretation so as to keep them from the diabolical truth. It is only as they advance and prove themselves at the lower levels that the truth is gradually revealed to them. Like we have consistently seen, this system of double meanings is the very definition of the occult. Dark ideas and meanings concealed in full view through allegory and symbolism. With this in mind, take a look at this picture from the Grand Lodge of North Carolina. You should now be quite adept at interpreting these symbols. There's the sun representing Baal. There's the moon representing Asherah an all-seeing eye above everything representing Lucifer. The rays coming from the eye signify that Lucifer claims to be the giver of enlightening knowledge. 33 degree Mason, Manley P. Hall, explains of the all-seeing eye. The all-seeing eye symbolizes God, who is obeyed by the heavens, manifested in the heart, and will reward the righteous. This symbol is famously represented on the US $1 bill and is depicted by an eye in the pyramid. The pyramid is incorporated in the symbol because God is the great architect. Now we know that the eye doesn't represent God at all, but represents Lucifer, and so that's a misdirection. You will also notice that the sun and moon are above columns. This is a new one, but columns in Freemasonry represent gods. Therefore, this image in its entirety, which is replicated frequently in the craft, shows a sun god, a moon goddess, and above and behind them all is Lucifer.
0: We can establish with some certainty that there is the connection with this idea that Lucifer is really Giver of information and, and the Enlightener, the opener of the eyes Of Adam and Eve and somehow the, the One who brings divine wisdom And this kind of goes along with the idea Of Hermes um, The god who travels back and forth With his little the winged feet And, and has the staff of Caduceus And so in occult terms going back uh, Into history, it's evident That there's a intrusion An incursion, if you will Of the fallen angels or the angelic and the book of Enoch goes into it and ultimately I think a lot of these esoteric occult fraternities and these ancient traditions these Pythagorean cults or that are coming out of the mystery traditions of Babylon are going to really find these um, these watchers and these fallen angels to be their heroes, their titans of old, their gods up on the uh, Mount Olympus. So, you know, back in the mythologies of the Greeks and the Romans, you had Zeus and you had Hermes, and you had uh, Hades and Mars up on up Olympus, and it was the mountain of the gods. And if you look in the biblical tradition, it's really Mount Hermon, and it's really this point where, the angels come down from uh, from from above, and they come down to below, and they they they, they you know come onto this uh, this mountain. And in the biblical traditions, um, there's this interaction between the fallen angels and the human the human beings. And from them, the Nephilim are born, and the giants of old, like Goliath, that uh, David had to to fight. And these giants were born from the un- unnatural generations of these. Of these watchers who came, who came down, and um, and their mythology and their cult went out across the world and uh, took on different forms. So that uh, you know, even Julius Caesar said that he was, his bloodline was related to Venus. So it's this kind of connection that the, their ancient, ancient peerage and their ancient uh, patternage goes back to these fallen angels and goes back to these nephilims, these nephilim bloodlines. So that, there's a lot to be said about that in the in the occult esoteric side of this. A lot of people who are Christian Bible believers who go to church, they're not really interested in this side of, of the topics and you know and, and they're not they're, they're interested in, in studying their scripture and getting to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but they're not interested in what the other side looks at and how they see it. So that's that's really what the the whole premise of the discussion is. Regarding Albert Pike and what is the secret society? We know that the the church doors of your local uh, Protestant churches and your you are are wide open and they're not secret. But these occult fraternities and these esoteric arcane societies and mystery schools—they don't have open doors, and you have to, uh, in order to be in those groups, you have to be in the right elite bloodline family members, and you have to, you know, go to the right schools and be in the right situation. To so kind of take a closer look here at Albert Pike and his his history, we have to recognize that a bunch of things happened at that time, at the same time, So that running contemporary with this innovation of the skull and bones at Yale, Order 322 at Yale in 1833, you're going to have the, the advent of the development of Brigham Young and the Mormon tradition of, which is really very connected, as we said before, to Freemasonry and the esoteric kind of interpretation of the scriptures. And there's this writing of this new Mormon book and the, the zeal of the time in the time of, of Great Awakening and, and John Edwards and the preaching and that was going on across America, this, this, the root of Mormonism took into the soil and, and a lot of people became really original hardcore proponents of Mormonism, and they had a rough time getting all around the Midwest, and eventually they were told by the Jesuit Pierre de Smet to go to the Great Salt Lake Valley, and and that would be their new their new Jerusalem, their their new Israelite on Earth, their new their new uh, place for their new kingdom, if you will, and that's what happened with um, with Brigham Young, and then all the ones that uh, the, the 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 prophets that followed him, they were called prophet the whole issue with Joseph Smith and the the rise of their conflict with the US army so that they were you know have this kind of military standoff uh, almost becoming their own nation and ultimately if you look at the history of the doctrine of mormonism it was this division between the nephites and the the other tribes um, who were the white-skinned people against the, the dark-skinned people, and they were mortal enemies. And the, the light-skinned people, of course, the pale-faced people, were, were the good angels, the good people of, of God, and the, the dark-skinned people were, were the, the fallen people of the devil. So, yeah, it's kind of a convoluted, you have to kind of go and do the work of studying Mormonism yourself to understand the, the racial and the racist nature of it. I mean, it was distilled 1860s thinking, at the time, it's in their scriptures that really can't be changed. It kind of has to. It's very similar to Islam, how they have certain customary and um, kind of archaic traditions crystallized within their religious doctrine that they can't change. And um, ultimately, the question of Albert Pike and how he had a relationship also with this. This Jesuit, Pierre de Smit, who was instrumental in helping him set up the Scottish Rite 33rd degree. And instrumental in helping to create and to support and give ideological support to the founding of the Mormon religious cult. And also, he was instrumental in helping Skull and Bones set up at Yale. So he has a. you can see that this one Jesuit, Pierre de Smith, is central in creating this kind of new American religio-cultic landscape that's developing in the 1860s. And we're going to move towards towards Lincoln, and ultimately we're going to have the outbreak of the Civil War, and ultimately the the powers of Europe would be. Taking advantage of the situation by funding both sides of the war. So Lincoln was going to need funds from Rothschild banks, perhaps in France, while Jefferson Davis, the president of the Southern Confederacy, was going to need to get funds from Rothschild banks in other areas of Europe, perhaps in England and and Italy and so on and so forth. So they were going to fund this competitive war and uh, that's exactly what happened. And ultimately Albert Pike is central in all this in being a Southern Confederate general and being one of the main instigators of the Ku Klux Klan. So we need to know who Albert Pike is, his connection with the literal Illuminati, not the, the kind of UFO, reptilian, space lizard Illuminati. The other podcasts are talking about, I'm talking about the actual Illuminati political mechanism for imperial power to to reach out and to control other areas of the world through this kind of international doctrine that was taking root within Freemasonry and other areas. So in order to kind of to take a closer focus at Albert Pike, we need to listen to this very interesting author. I always say interesting because that's all we have around here. We have Robert Sullivan, and he does this book, and it's called The Royal Arch of Enoch. And he discusses his book. Now, Robert Sullivan is a high-level Freemason himself, and he doesn't give away any of the secrets of the lodge, but he discusses history to a really fine degree of granularity that it really has to be put into, into this podcast. So let's listen to this very interesting, this is going to be Red Ice Radio, and if you haven't heard of Red Ice Radio, then I need to let you know that it's it's crucial that you, in order to be informed, that you have a wide, diverse area of, of collecting information for yourself. So let's listen to... Red Ice Radio interview with Robert Sullivan.
7: Sullivan is a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, writer, and a lawyer. He is the author of The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. It is his first published work, and it's the result of 20 years of research. Today, we're going to talk about the book, of course, and go deeper into Masonic lore and the origins of Masonry. The rituals, ceremonies, names, and deities surrounding the royal arch degree is something we'll also discuss. We talk about the history of battling secret societies and philosophies with pro-papal Jesuits and anti-royal aristocratic masons. We'll also get into Enoch, the book of Enoch, and Enochian magic. Good stuff, so stay with us. Welcome, Robert. Uh, thank you for coming on the program. First of all, this is going to be uh, very interesting, I think. You have a very interesting book with a lot of material, a lot of stuff in it, so we're looking forward to it. Uh, welcome.
5: Uh, thank, thank you, Henrik. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you on red ice, and um, looking forward to this interview. You bet. Now,
7: before we dive into the meat of the book, of course, uh, talking about Enoch and the, the Royal Arch and everything else, uh, why don't you just tell us about your background a little bit as a mason and when you first came across some of the material
5: uh, that led you to write this book? Sure. Um, The the journey for me for writing this book began when I was an associate student at Oxford University uh, 20 years ago. Um, I was a graduate. I graduated Gettysburg College, which is in Pennsylvania. I was a history major there, but for my junior year, I studied abroad at Oxford University, and it was really when I got over there um, that I was sort of exposed to what you would call um, authors who were writing about the hermetic tradition coming out of the Renaissance, going into the Enlightenment, um, sort of these characters... Um, people like, uh, you know, people that you really never even heard of over here, people like Picker, della Mandarola, Marcello Pacino, um, even to a lesser extent, Francis Bacon, of course, Dr. John C. Um, and, you know, you, you read works by people like Peter French and Francis Yates, and this, this work just really impressed me. I, I wasn't a Mason at the time, I and mean, I was only 20, 21 years old over there, but um, the, the material stuck with me, and I, I continued to research it, and um uh, I ultimately graduated uh, Gettysburg College and in the late 1990s I went to law school in um, Delaware. I, I'm, I'm from Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland. And um, when, when I was in law school, or right before I went to law school, the opportunity presented itself to join Masonic Lodge here in Baltimore. Um, and I, I took it, I was invited to join, and I, I became a third-degree um, Free Lodge or Blue Lodge uh, Mason in 1997. And shortly before I graduated law school, this would have been our October of 1999, um, I became a 32nd degree Freemason of the Scottish Rite um, here in Baltimore. And while I was in law school, I continued to keep this, I continued to do this research. um, And of course, now being a Mason, I became exposed to people like Albert Pike, Albert Mackey, Manley Palmer Hall, um, you know, who who were really writing about the esoteric and mystical side of Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. This really just impressed me. And um, it really wasn't until I, I continued to do doing the research, and it really wasn't until around 2005, 2006, with the advent of the social media on the Internet, um, this, of course, predated Twitter and Facebook and things like that, um, it was with a, with a social networking page called MySpace. And um, I created this MySpace page, and I really just started sharing the research that I was doing about sort of the esoteric side of Freemasonry, the astrological symbolism, the solar symbolisms, you know, the the mystical elements of it. And the page was really popular. Um, I was posting blogs, photo galleries, things of that nature. And it was around, I guess, 2006, 2007, I was approached by a friend of mine, uh, this person's no longer alive, um, who said, he he had seen the the, the MySpace page, and said, you know, this is all real good and fine, Rob. Why don't you commit yourself to writing a book and you can just memorialize all this information you know, for all time, and, you know, it was a great idea, it was what I had planned on really doing anyway, um, so really starting around 2006, 2007, I just really started putting pen to paper um, and writing this book and, you know, shooting, you know, putting in the research that I had done, and um, the book was completed in the summer of 2011, and uh, it came out in August of 2012.
7: Very good, now, uh, so let's talk about uh, how you got your I, on the 7th degree of the York Rite, the, the Royal Arch Mason, because if you join Scottish Rite, I think 32nd is called, what is it, the sublime prince of the royal secret, master of the royal secret. <laughs>
5: that's me, like that. that's me.
7: <laughs> so how did you, uh, how does it work, let's say, because I mean, everyone, as just as I have done right now, can Google the structure of Freemasonry and look at this nice image of, you know, how it's laid out and everything. But uh, I, you know, I have no idea how it works within the order. So how did you, you get your eye on, on the York right and
5: one of the degrees of the theory? Well, the, 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 the Royal Arch degree is in both the York and Scottish right. Um, I'm not a York right mason. Um, the York right is um, part of the high degrees. It's is a separate right. It's like Scottish Rite, only um, it, it has different elements. The Scottish right, like you said, is, 30, is 32nd, the 7th degree in the York Right is the Royal Archist the Thirteenth in the Scottish Right. Um, so the York Right and uh, the Scottish Right, these high degrees, and, and this is this is really murky history that you're getting into. Um, it's almost like a chicken or the egg question. The the York Right and the Scottish Right are both born out of the same thing. It's these twenty-five degrees coming out of Paris, France, in the 1730s, called the Right of Perfection. Um, they're twenty-five degrees. they they. they they, they, they come into America, they're basically midwives into America through Haiti. Um, and they and they come in and a guy named Henry Franklin or Franklin creates this right of perfection in Albany, New York. And it's through this right of perfection that is born the New York right of PS Webb and ultimately the Supreme Council of the World, which is the thirty you know, the Scottish right degrees. ultimately the thirty second in of course. The honorary 33rd degree. Hmm. Um, but the Royal Arch degree um, in the York right it's actually called the Royal Arch Zoro Bible. In the in the Scottish right, it's the 13th degree, and this this ties into your number 13 symbolism, uh, which is uh, you know, we uh, plead all over the place.
7: So, um, so that's the one, Robert, that you uh, that you stumbled over on then in your path, uh, you know, to the 32nd. And was there something that stood out to you particularly yeah. with the 13th
5: degree? Absolutely. The the, the the 13th degree, and this is where you get into some really deep Masonic lore, is to answer your question, to really answer it thoroughly, you have to go back to the Blue Lodge, and you have to understand what's going on there. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to answer that first to get to the 13th degree, because what happens in the Blue Lodge, I'm mean, going to try to convince this, um, essentially in the third degree, this is the Master Mason degree, um, the, the ritual revolves around a guy who's building the first temple named Hiram of Biff, and he, he possesses what is called the Tetragrammaton, it's this lost name of God. He has it, and it's through the connect, cor, correct pronunciation of this name that learning and mathematics is made possible. Um, in the third degree ritual, a Biff is murdered by three fellow three fellow cramps, um prior to the completion of the temple, and when he's killed, the word is lost. It's, it's gone, it's, it's, it's gone, when he dies it disappears with him well if you fast forward now to the, to the Scottish Rite degrees and the high degrees um, it's this 13th degree, this, this royal arch degree, where the name of God, here in of this lost word the lost word of a mas- master mason is recovered they find it, they find the name of God they find it in this underground vault um, that is that, that, concealed on the temple mount um, and it, it's this recovery of the tetragrammaton, the name of God, which is really penultimate, if you will, symbol of Freemasonry. It's the lost word of a master mason. And if you get into Masonic lore, and this gets into the book of Enoch, um, it, the, the bulk of Enoch is containing this lost, um, legitimate wisdom that the Freemasons basically are symbolically restoring. And it's, to me, it's this 13th degree, which is really... The penultimate degree in, in all of Freemasonry. Before we get into talking more about
7: Enoch, uh, the Book of Enoch, and of course his testimony, if you will, how this was found and everything, uh, let's spend a little bit on the origins of Freemasonry itself, because that's, that is also, of course, a big uh, question. There are some people who claim that it's now they're sticking strictly to 1717, and uh, you know, the goose and the grid iron behind St. Paul's Cathedral right there, while some people like Robert Lomas, for example, talks about that it's evidence of Masonic uh, architectural style in the chapel of Rosslyn in in uh, in Scotland, um, and this you know they started in 1440, I think. How far back do you go when it comes to the origins of Freemasonry, Robert?
5: Well, well, as, as modern day, it's an interesting question. As modern day Freemasonry stands, it's, it's what you said. It's 1770. Now, what what happens is, and I think this is where a lot of this information is coming from, when the great when the Grand Lodge. This is really a, a, a key thing here between when you talk about the history of Freemasonry between Blue Lodge Freemasonry and the High Degree in 1717, when when the when the right is really developed, it's the first three degrees of Freemasonry, which is called the Blue Lodge, shortly after its form, a guy named James Anderson writes this legendary history yeah. Yeah. where he yeah he traces Masonry back basically to the Garden of Eden. It, it, it's legendary, but what he what he attributes it to is, and this is where like Lomas gets, gets into it is that it basically is originating from these Germanic stone cutters um, and stone workers who possess these biblical secrets, if you will, about stone construction, architecture, things of that nature. So, as the actual, as as Freemasonry as it exists today is from 1717. Now, how far you want to go back beyond that, especially when you start getting into things like the Hermetic tradition, influences of, like, Rosicrucianism, things like that on it, I mean, yeah, you can definitely trace it back further. I mean, you could, you know, really trace it back I mean, if you understand like the, the solar iconography of a lot of blue lodge and masonry. You could take that back almost to Egypt, if you will. Yeah. Um, but but what's interesting is is and, and this is where there's the sort of split with with masonry is you have these blue blue degrees with the blue lodge. Well, it's, it's in France in in the 17, 1730s, that a guy named Andrew Michael de Chevalier Ramsey comes along yeah. and. What he does, is he, he issues in 1737, his famed oration. What he does is he, he doesn't challenge Anderson, but he says, yeah, Anderson is right that there is evidence of, um, you know, Freemasonry coming out of these medieval German stoneworkers, no doubt about that. He said, but, he said, and this is where it's key, he said the Freemasonry is really a creation of a group of medieval warrior monks called the Knights Templar. And Freemasonry is basically an agent. Of the Pope in Rome, and this causes all kinds of dissension and problems within Freemasonry. But it's out of Ramsey's oration of 1730, uh, 1737 that these high degrees are being born out of.
7: Mm, yeah, and of course the Knights uh, Templar. That's also really where the uh, where the kind of the, the the Scottish and the York right kind of meet almost there at the top, isn't that right?
5: Well, it's it's it's. it's when when Ramsey gives his, gives his oration, shortly thereafter you have these twenty five degrees coming out of France called the Right of Perfection, um, and like I said, this is where these degrees come into the United States, and it's through these twenty five degrees that basically are born out of the Scottish Right and the York Right. Um, what what is controversial with this, and what I kind of get into in mine with with my book, is it appears it appears to me at least. On its, on its face value, if, if you really understand it. I mean, other Masonic authors have talked about this. This is, this is Albert Mackey. But it appears that the um, high degrees, as it were, and, and this, this is where, you know, you really get into some, you know, deep, muddy waters, if you will. Um, the 25 degrees coming out of this, um, out of Paris, Paris, France, in the 1700s, looks like it was being developed by the Jesuits, um, at this place called the College of Claremont. Um, and You know, when you hear that, people think, well, what do the Jesuits want to have to do with Freemasonry? (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, Right, right. but it's it's really what they're doing is part of the Counter-Reformation. What they're trying to do is, they're symbolically trying to lure Protestants back to the Pope in Rome through these capitular, higher degrees of Freemasonry. It's a neat little trick, they're pulling. Now, whether Ramsay's oration, whether he he intended for that to happen, um, probably is kind of lost to history, but it definitely seems that there is... Um, you know the Jesuit influence on these high degrees. I mean, when you when you look at Blue Lodge Freemasonry of 1717 in England, and you look at the higher degrees, I mean, they kind of they you know contradict each other. Um, you know, you have the Blue Lodge, which is preaching things such as you know equality, um, you know anti-Vatican, you know this sort of you know brotherhood, universal you know universal brotherhood, equality. When you get into the high degrees, you'll definitely find themes of papal monarchy. I mean, it's like you said earlier, you know, it's the royal secret. You know, it's the royal arch. Yeah. Um, it's elements of what you would call papal monarchy. And um, it, it, it seems to be coming out of the uh, Jesuit College of Claremont. And this is uh, one of their counter-reformation tricks, if you will.
7: Well, it's a, this is a very interesting uh, point that you're talking about here, Um I want to. You have a passage on this in the beginning of the book, I wanted to read that, I'm having it up right now here. Here it is, Blue Lodge Masonry and its three degrees of entered apprentice fellowship craft and master mason is egalitarian, just as you uh, said, Robert. Uh, as such, it fundamentally opposes concepts like monarchy and ecclesiastical rule, yet the Masonic categories of the Scottish and the York Rite embraces ideals such as divine kingship and religiosity. Uh, a contradiction, basically, just what you said. And, and I've always wondered about that too, because I've heard on one level that, you know, yeah, brotherhood and, and uh, you know, uh, egalitarianism, that's like, you know, behind some of the ideals of, of masonry. Yet at the same time, I can see that, uh, you know, even our king of Sweden is like, the, he's the royal protector of, of, uh, of the order, you know, stuff like that. So it's like, hmm, wait a minute, what is the connection here? If they're behind democratic organizations, as they say on one level, and liberty, and yet, on the other other level, uh, they're you know deeply embedded, if you will, with the with the royals. How does that work? Tell us more about it's, this
5: contradiction. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, what it comes out of is it's it's, it's a contradiction. Is like we were just saying, it's this Blue Lodge. It's this sort of theme of universal brotherhood. But when you get into the high degrees, it's, it's what is it, what part of is the Counter Reformation, and what what it ultimately is coming back to is like you talked about with the you know the king. I mean, even even in Victorian England. I mean, and I can't remember the exact title. I think Queen Victoria was known as the Protectress of the craft. Yeah. And, you know, you get themes of monarchy, and what, what this really stems from, it comes from Ramsey's 1737 oration, where he he, he links Freemasonry to this group of warrior monks called the Templars, and of course, the Templars were basically Roman Catholic, um, you know, warrior monk-style priests who were answerable to the Pope in Rome and it's, it's definitely this sort of Jesuit contradiction that they're basically creating these high degrees. And, what, I mean, you know, like I said, the, the, the thing with, you know, th- this ties into the, you know, concept of, you know, high degree freemasonry in the United States, but it's this, you know, what's lost in the Blue Lodge is recovered in the high degrees, and when you recover this petrogrammaton, it's almost like a symbolic restoration of monarchy, if you will, um, and what Albert Mackey argues, and I tend to agree with him, is that the High Degrees, um, uh, as part of this Jesuit, you know, Counter Reformation um, ideology, if you will, that they seem to be um, a vehicle. At least they were in the 1700s, of um, trying to restore the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England, uh, with what the High Degrees seem to ultimately have been based upon. When they come, when they come into the United States. Um, and, and these 25 degrees come in, they're reworked. They're reworked, um, they're reworked and, and sort of this, you know, you know, the themes of monarchy and you know, what we were just talking about are re- remain. But what happens? Something really unique happens, um, where it's, it's different from the European version, and, and it's, it's a long story. I mean, we, we can get into sure. it, but yeah. you know, it's, it's what happens is it's a guy in America named Thomas Smith Webb. What he does is. He, he, re- he reworked the high degrees where instead of it basically embracing papal monarchy, what, what he kind of, and this is how it gets tilted into the Scottish right also, but again, this is a chicken and egg question. Um, but what Webb does is, and this is getting to the York right, he's ultimately the main guy behind the York right. Um, what Webb says is, in his monitor, was in, in this degree, this Royal Arch degree, when the, when the candidate beholds the name of God in this underground vault. Basically, instead of it being a link to the monarchy of Europe, or European monarchy, that the, the candidate is now a citizen king himself. Um, you know, sort of this, you know, new age, perfected citizen of this new world democracy. And that's sort of the, the, the nexus, the sort of split, if you will, with the difference between sort of the American version of it and the European version of it.
7: Yeah, very interesting. Uh... Again, just to kind of go over some of these points here again, the, uh, if we look at an organization like the Jacobins, um, you know, they're really like a, a you know, really far left radical organization. Um, I mean, they've been known for their implementation of what they call the Reign of Terror. And this, this organization, the Jacobins, is in, you know, in France at the time during the French Revolution, is also kind of really laying the groundwork for other organizations like the Illuminati, which comes out of this pretty much. And in the ranks of the Illuminati, you also have aristocrats, but they're, you know, counter-monarchy, basically. Uh, when I look back into history, it's like, it's impossible for us to know the true intentions of, of those people who started these organizations and what the true purpose of them is. I mean, Adam Weissup himself was a, was a Jesuit. So has, does that have anything to do with it? And I mean, as I look back, it's like, it is uh, it is really muddy, the waters. What do you make of, of, of these, uh, you know... These far left organizations that are anti monarchy, but then at the end it be- seems to become associated with the monarchy itself. Isn't it weird? Yeah,
5: I, I, yeah, I, I totally I totally agree with what you just said. Um, um, I, I was interviewed about this, and I'm, I'm, when, when you're talking about a group, I'm glad we're talking about this, like a group like the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, when I mentioned the Illuminati, Like you, I'm talking about the Adam Weishaupt 1776 Illuminati. Yeah. Um, And like you said, these guys are the guys who are like the Pythagorean, you know, passion, fire, revolutionary deal. But what's interesting is, like you said, it's this sort of element of duplicity with these guys. Weishaupt and a lot of the members of the Illuminati are, um, you know, trained by the Jesuits. And... um, when, when, when you trace the Illuminati in history, and this is where it really gets interesting, in my opinion, is if you look at the history of the Jesuits. People, here's the problem. Here's the problem, Henry, is people are looking. Like you just said, people are looking at groups like the, you know, the Jesuits for like a 21st century eyeglass. That is a total mistake. Yeah. Um. You know, if you go back in time to when the Jesuits were formed by Ignatius or Loyola, I mean, he he created the Jesuits to be this Osirian, Isian, Egyptian solar priesthood. Um, these guys were mystics. Um, you know, these guys in Europe um, were basically, you know, your CIA of Europe in the 17th century, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, um, you know, you've got. And you, you tell people this. I mean, they just fall over backwards. It's one of the most learned Jesuits um, out there. Was a guy. Um, named Athanasius Kircher. Yeah. And um yeah, he's a Jesuit priest and he writes extensively He's a Jesuit. I mean he says listen, I'm a Jesuit, he said Christianity is just corrupted, you know, Egyptian sun worship. Um, you know, and you've got the Jesuits plotting to kill Queen Elizabeth the First. They're constantly um you know meddling in European politics. When we get to the Illuminati of seventeen seventy six, well in seventeen seventy three Pope Clement the tries to put the Jesuits out of business because of their political meddling. Their Egyptian occultism, um, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're scheming, and it's right after you know the the suppression of the Society of Jesus in 1773. Well, bang, what do you have? You know, the, the Illuminati on the scene, and there is a German aristocrat, and this is the guy I think you're talking about, and I believe his last name is Kniggy. It may be Knig. Yeah, I, Knig. Heard, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. He he joins the Illuminati. He's sort of the, for lack of a better word, the de facto. Um, Leader of German occultism in the, um, in that time frame. He's a Freemason. He joins the Illuminati at Weishaupt. And he brings with him a whole host of Freemason with And it's exactly what you say. He thinks, okay, I'm joining this Eagle Harry, you know, this New World Brotherhood. It's anti Pope, it's anti Rome. You know, we have religious freedoms. You know, we're going to have this equal society. Everything's going to be great. Well, Kennedy, Kennedy leaves shortly after and he writes a treaty. And he says, he says, look, I joined this group isn't, you know, these guys, like why von Born, yeah, I mean, they say one thing, but these guys are just all the Jesuits under another name.
7: Well, I that's think. just what he said. He said he accused Weishaupt of Jesuitism. He suspected him of being a Jesuit in disguise. That's uh, right, yeah.
5: He bails out yeah. there, yeah. And then, and then, you know, when it gets murky again, is you have, you know, during the height of the Napoleonic Wars, the Illuminati sort of fades a little bit into the background, and, um, but then what happens at the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars? Well, bang, the Jesuits are restored along with the Papal State. So, I mean, it's like the, Je- the Jesuits just went underground for this, you know, time frame of the French Revolution in this time of Napoleon. They're suppressed. They, go, they change their name, and then they reemerge and everything, you know, back to, back to square one, back to normal, if you will.
7: So we have the Jesuits and the Vatican with the Knights Templar or the Knights of Malta in the extension on one end. And then on the other, if this is the division, and uh, it depends on what, you know, where in history we're talking about this as well, because there's been allegiances in different times, and these are groups are maybe at a later date actually are, you know, going at each other. So this is, you know, we have to clarify this, I guess, but one of the simplifications that have been made, that's what I'm trying to get to, is that there have been kind of a, a war between uh, the Vatican and, and Freemasons, or, or, you know, those who are aligned to the more of the Freemasonic organization, is that a generally a correct assessment, do you think,
5: Robert? Well, I think that when, you know, the, the Vatican, you know, the Vatican sees Blue Lodge Freemasonry as a bit of a threat because it's deism, and it's, you know, you, know, you can be, you know, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Zoroastrian, as long as you believe in a Supreme Being, you can join a Masonic Lodge. This kind of goes against, you know, the whole concept of, you know, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. In Freemasonry, you don't have to do that. You just have to believe in what's called a supreme being, with, you know, God, the great architect, call it what you want. Um, the, you know, the Vatican flip-flops you know, on Freemasonry. They kind of go against it. They really don't like it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the Vatican seems to, you know, have completely lost control of the Jesuits. They're doing their own thing. Um, but finally, really, the Vatican kind of just throws in the towel of Freemasonry, um... You know, certainly when the United States is created in 1776 or 1781, I mean, obviously at that point in time, you know, you have this, you know, you, you are out, you are outside the parameters of Europe, if you will. So, you know, Freemasonry can flourish in this new world, you know, which has democratic freedoms and you know, separation of church and state, which comes out of the Constitution of Freemasonry, by the way, from Anderson. But um, it, it's really, it's really in the 19th century, in the later part. and I don't know the date, the date on this. So, basically, that's when sort of the Vatican just kind of throws in the towel of Freemasonry, and they create a a Roman Catholic uh, version of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and it's called the Knights of Columbus. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that basically, what, what in a nutshell happens is um, the Vatican says, look, if you want to, do, you know, you're Catholic and you want to join a secret society, this is the one for you. And, and that's when, kind of, the, you know, by that point in time, you're getting into the 20th century, and... You know, the Vatican's got bigger fish to fry at that point in
7: time. Yeah, I think it was uh, Bill Clinton who uh, was in was in nat the Columbus. He always goes back to, sit, to talk about that. I know. <laughs>
0: So once again, you find that this is a very fascinating topic, and you find that Sullivan is a absolute uh, scholar and an academic in the whole subject matter, um, as far as the history of Freemasonry and how the esoteric fraternities really connect historically with the medieval period and with the time of the dominance of the papal monarch over Europe and the the influence that that had within the American Revolutionary War, our fight for Independence, and the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution itself, and the resistance of the colonists to the tyranny of King George III, and really the background with Elizabeth I as the Protestant Queen, and the whole issue with the Jesuits having attempted to blow up Parliament, blow up King James and his entire family and the entire parliament in the name of the papacy and trying to gain a victory for Catholicism. And you can see that their efforts were, their efforts were taking fruition as it were in the the accession of King George III to the throne, because he was a puppet and just a totally controlled slave of the Jesuit order. And so that, and that's why the the red coats, the, the English army was really coming in to become such a threat in the area was because of this kind of insidious control that Rome had over the monarchy there in England. So ultimately the, the American colonists, the reformers, the Baptists, the Protestants, and all the people, even the men and women who were from Africa who were imported by the British Empire as slaves to the New World, were all really in a fight for their for their lives, for the existential fight for the future there in the Revolutionary War in 1776. So as we go further into this, we have to introduce this new idea that with Albert Pike, his connection with Giuseppe Mazzini, who was an Italian revolutionary leader of the mid-1800s and a main director of the European branch of the Illuminati. He has a historic letter with Albert Pike here, and I'm just going to read a little write-up. And it's, it discusses the Illuminati plan for three world wars. And this is August fifteenth, eighteen seventy-one. So this is going to be just after the Civil War. The following is a letter that speculation claimed that Albert Pike wrote to Giuseppe Mazzini in eighteen seventy-one regarding a conspiracy involving three world wars that were planned in an attempt to take over the world. The Pike letter to Giuseppe Mazzini was on display in the British Museum Library in London until 1977. This year has been claimed by many internet researchers to reside in the British Library in London, although they deny its existence. Albert Pike, historic Masonic figure, was a 33rd degree Freemason, occultist Grand grandmaster, and creator of the southern jurisdiction of the Masonic Scottish Rite Order. Falling apparently, are the extracts of the letter showing the three world wars, the First World War, this is just going to be the quotations of this, this letter, but obviously was in display in the museum there. The First World War must be brought about in order to permit the Illuminati to overthrow the power of the Tsars in Russia and making that country a fortress of atheistic communism. The divergences caused by the genture of the Illuminati between the British-Germanic empires will be used to foment this war. At the end of the war, communism will be built and used to, in order to destroy the other governments and in order to weaken the religions. The Second World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences between the fascists and the political Zionists. This war must be brought about so that Nazism is destroyed and that the political Zionism be strong enough to institute a sovereign state of Israel and Palestine. During the Second World War, international communism must be become strong enough in order to balance Christendom, which would be then restrained and held in check until the time when we need it for the final social cataclysm. The Third World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences caused by the agenture of the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the the leaders of the Islamic world. The war must be conducted in such a way that Islam, the Muslim Arabic world, the political Zionists, the State of Israel mutually destroy each other. Meanwhile, as the other nations, once more divided on this issue, will be constrained to fight to the point of complete physical, moral, and spiritual, and economic exhaustion. We shall unleash the nihilists and the atheists, and we shall provoke a formidable social cataclysm, which, in all its horror, will show clearly to the nations the effect of the absolute atheism, origin of savagery, of the most bloody turmoil. Then everywhere the citizens obliged to defend themselves against the world minority of revolutionaries will exterminate those destroyers of civilization and the multitude disillusioned with Christianity, whose deistic spirits will from that moment be without compass or direction, anxious for an ideal, but without knowing where to render its adoration, will receive the true light through the universal manifestation of the pure doctrine of Lucifer, brought finally out into the public view. This manifestation will result from the general reactionary movement that will follow the destruction of Christianity and atheism, both conquered and exterminated at the same time. So I just had to read that into the record of this episode, that it's sensible to understand how people are looking back at this this conspiratorial view of the efforts. And this letter dates back quite A long way. So this is before we get into the first world war in nineteen ten and and the Russian Revolution. And you can see that they're looking out ahead of how they will plan this new century. And this letter is very controversial, and we have to just kind of introduce this, this idea conceptually so we can really get into what is the plan for China and this new globalism, this new era of globalism we're in, and how effective the vatican uses the united nations and um, as we have to look at this we have this very interesting um, piece here that we want to put in by J.R. church and he is a teacher lecturer and author and he comes from the background as a baptist preacher so let's go ahead and just listen to what his take is on this whole issue with
1: albert pike
2: albert pike was one of the most colorful characters in american history it is said that he was born on December 29, 1809 in Boston, was the eldest son of uh, six children born to Benjamin Sarah Andrew Pike. He studied at Harvard and later served as Brigadier General of the Confederate Army. After the Civil War, Pike was found guilty of treason and jailed, only to be pardoned by President Andrew Jackson on April 2, 1866, who met with him the next day at the White House. On June 20th, 1867, Scottish Rite officials conferred upon Johnson 32nd degree Freemasonry degrees. Pike was said to be a genius, able to read and write 16 languages. He was one of the founding fathers of the head of the ancient accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, being the Grand Commander of North America Freemasonry from 1859 and retained that position until his death in 1891. In 1869, he was the top leader of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Pike was said to be a Satanist who indulged in the occult, and he apparently possessed a bracelet which he used to summon Lucifer, with whom he had constant communication. He was the grandmaster of a Luciferian group known as the Order of the Palladium or of uh, Sovereign Council of Wisdom, it's also been called, which had been founded in Paris in 1737. Now, General Albert Pike was the only Confederate general with a statue on federal property in Washington, D.C. He was honored not as a commander, or even as a lawyer, but as Southern Regional Leader of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. The statue stands on a pedestal near the foot of Capitol Hill between the Department of Labor Building and the Municipal Building between 3rd and 4th Streets on D Street Northwest. Now, I tell you all of this because it is said that he received a vision from his mentor, Mr. Lucifer, I guess, on August 15, 18. 71, and William Guy Carr former intelligence officer in the Royal Canadian Navy wrote a book called Satan, Prince of This World in which he gives this information he said that he received this information from a book written by Cardinal uh, Caro Rodriguez in Santiago, Chile who wrote in 1925 a book called The Mystery of Freemasonry Unveiled and in this book In 1925, it is said that he wrote a letter to a man named Mazzini in which he described this dream. And in the dream, he predicted three world wars. The first world war, he said, must be brought about, and I'm quoting from Albert Pike. The first world war must be brought about in order to permit the Illuminati to overthrow the power of the Tsars in Russia and of making that country a fortress of atheistic communism. The divergences caused by the agents of the Illuminati between the British and German empires will be used to foment this war. At the end of the war, communism will be built and used in order to destroy the other governments and in order to weaken the religions. Now, Students of history will know that Otto von Bismarck forged a certain alliances between 1871 and 1898, uh, which brought about this war, this World War One. And Otto von Bismarck here says that he was a co-conspirator with Albert Pike, and he was the one instrumental in bringing about the First World War. Well, that's the First World War. Then he dreams that there must be, he is given in this visionary dream, a Second World War. Now, remember, this was in 1925 that it became public in this book written by uh, uh, by a cardinal uh, from Santiago, Chile, Rodriguez. He says, "Quote: The Second World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences between the fascists and the political Zionists. This war must be brought about so that Nazism is destroyed and that the political Zionism must be will be strong enough." to institute a sovereign state of Israel in Palestine. During the Second World War, international communism must become strong enough in order to balance Christendom, which would then be uh, restrained and held in check until the time when we would need it for the final social cataclysm. Well, there are some who may argue that the terms Nazism and Zionism were not known in 1871. Uh, you should remember, however, that the Illuminati invented both of these movements. In addition, communism as an ideology and as a coin phrase originates in France during the Revolution. In, eight, in 1785, Restif coined the phrase four years before the Revolution broke out. Restif and Be- Bebouf uh, in turn were influenced by Rosé, as was the most famous conspirator of them all, Adam Huysart. Then he has this Vision in this vision, not only one world war and two world wars, but here comes the third world war. He says, and I quote, The third world war must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences caused by the agents of the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. Yeah, that's what he says. The war, this was 1925. Please understand that. Uh, at least 1925. And they go all the way back to 1871 as is purported to do, but at least it was written in a book and published in 1925. So he says that after World War I was just over a few years and before World War II even started, he's now thinking about this Third World War and he says that it will uh, be caused by the differences between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. The war must be conducted in such a way that Islam, the Muslim-Arabic world, and political Zionism, the state of Israel, mutually destroy each other. What it says, Meanwhile, the other nations, once more divided on this issue, will be constrained to fight to the point of complete physical, moral, spiritual, and economic exhaustion. We shall unleash the nihilists and the atheists And we shall provoke a formidable social cataclysm in which in all its horror will show clearly to the nations the effect of absolute atheism, origin and savagery, and of the most bloody turmoil. So he's against Christianity and he's against atheism. They're supposed to fight each other to the death, you see. Then, he says, everywhere the citizens obliged to defend themselves against the world minority of revolutionaries will exterminate those destroyers of civilization and and the multitude disillusioned with Christianity whose deistic spirits will from that moment be without compass or direction, anxious for an ideal but without knowledge where to render its adoration, will receive the true light through the universal manifestation of the pure doctrine of Lucifer. Well, he says, brought about finally in, brought, brought finally out in the public view. So he's saying that Lucifer will finally make himself, you know, the good guy. He's going to save the world from these atheists who don't believe in deity and from these Christians who believe in the good God. Well, so it says, this manifestation will result in in the general reactionary movement, which will follow the destruction of Christianity and atheism, both conquered and exterminated at the same time. Well, I don't know if it's true, but I can tell you that it sure has played into what is being carried on in, um, in, least in the Middle And it looks like everything from World War I and World War II with the development of the state of Israel... And with the Zionist movement and the communist movement and the atheist movement and the peppering down of persecution on the Christians of this world, it looks like that may be Lucifer's attempt at annihilation of us all um, so that Lucifer will appear in the form, of course, of what the Bible calls the Antichrist and establish peace on earth for mankind (laughs) I got news for all those Illuminatists I can tell you this they're all going to be thrown into the lake of fire so says the word of God and I believe it from cover to cover
0: so, in this generalized way, we can see that this is the kind of discussion that we you, you have to expect. You know, coming from an outside point of view, from from a personal outlook on the world as a Bible believing Christian, people see these plans by these Luciferians and by these these men who are ultimately seem to be possessed by some kind of I don't know. Dark motive, really operating as the mystery religions have always done, and the and the occult esoteric fraternities have always been moving forward the political advancement of universal power. So this is going to go back to the idea of Nimrod or the fight with Cicero for the Republic against Julius Caesar, who is going to be the Imperator, the ultimate you know Caesar, the ultimate uh, emperor king over the entire state, so that it becomes a tyranny, a dictatorship, and that's ultimately what we see playing out over and over again and it seems like that the forces of lucifer always work better with the political autocracy of dictatorship and tyranny and authoritarian regimes so that's what we're going to see repeated over and over again and really i want to go back again this is kind of reiterating again the the whole thesis that is being hidden from view so that we cannot really see that there's planning behind and orchestration behind these kind of world events. And this is where you can go ahead, like we say, you can go ahead and put your aluminum foil hat on and you can become a conspiracy theorist. But we really have to look at this objectively. And as we were saying before, this influence of the Vatican and the Jesuits behind a lot of these attempts um, at creating hierarchies that are controlled by European aristocratic power structures is what we're seeing when we see the KKK or the knights of the golden circle who were really pushing very hard in the south to maintain slavery and to make money off the the slave trade and their connection with the british uh, empire if you will and the monarchy there, and the attempt to create this divergence and this, this political fracture between the North and the South was something that was capitalized on by the, you know, the, the banking elite, especially Rothschild banking. And so ultimately, Abraham Lincoln is going to enter into this situation where he has to use extraordinary measures. He has, to, he has to use extraordinary executive orders for the first time. These are going to be war powers, emergency war powers that he's going to take upon himself that don't want to actually exist in the Constitution. So since the the quorum of the Republic is broken, the legislative body is split, and the, the Southern uh, Confederacy delegates, have, you know, representatives have gone home. It just leaves Lincoln to use presidential authority on his own. And that's how he raises the army and how he gets federal debt and how he gets money, how he, how he holds the union together is with these executive orders. And so we see that this, the tyranny of the executive branch, this kind of move towards imperialism in the federal government begins with Lincoln. And he ultimately was going to put it back. That's what his his words and his writings and all of his energies were put to restoring the Republic and restoring the Constitution in the correct place for the presidential authority to reside and to put away these war powers so that he would no longer be necessarily the commander-in-chief commanding all the, um, the armed forces and Ultimately, dictating battle or you know authorizing uses of force; these are all things that didn't exist before Lincoln, and and he had to ultimately do it to keep the the Union together and to to get to the point where we could set the slaves free in the Emancipation Proclamation. But ultimately, when he was assassinated, he he was assassinated. He was killed in the middle of using these powers, and they were never rescinded. So that's really what we have to get to, and that's really what we're seeing in this playing out with um, the whole situation with Albert Pike. Having a statue, a Confederate statue, in Washington D.C., and what it means in this this, this empowerment of the Washington um, District of Columbia to an extraordinary extent is because that war powers traveled from one president to the next and have just remained in place even after there was no more emergency and there was no more war. So these powers have been used by you know European influence, you know, used by men who were sold out to this idea of, and ultimately power itself is not something that easily goes back in the bottle as a genie. So, let's listen to what Walter Weith has to say about this whole subject. I find his teachings to be absolutely crucial, so let's take a listen to Walter Weith.
8: He used to be a Catholic, and then became a Protestant. This war would never have been possible without the sinister influence of the Jesuits. We owe it to popery that we now see our land reddened with the blood of our noblest son. Abraham Lincoln, 1865, 16th President of the United States, Lincoln's private letters. They were burnt by his son Robert, restated by Charles Chinnicki, who was the personal confidant of the president. In a letter dated 22 January 1870, Massini wrote to Pike. Now, Albert Pike is this high mason who wrote this the manual, if you like, of Scottish Freemasonry. He said the following. We must allow all of the federations to continue just as they are. It must appear as things are as they were in the beginning. With their systems, their central authorities, and diverse modes of correspondence between high grades of the same right, organized as they are at present, but we must create a super right, which will remain unknown, to which we will call those masons of high degree whom we shall select. With regard to our brothers in masonry, these men must be pledged to the strictest secrecy. Through this supreme right, we will govern all Freemasonry, which will become the one international center, the more powerful, because its direction will be unknown. Now, Albert Pike wrote a letter to Mancini, and that was dated August 15, 1871, in which he propagated that there should be a world order, a one order where all nations are under the control of one central organization. And in order to achieve this, they plan the First World War, to overthrow the power of the Tsars in Russia, protector of orthodoxy, and bring about an atheistic, communistic state. Did that happen? The Second World War, that's also written long before the event, to originate between Great Britain and Germany to strengthen Communism as, athe- as antithesis to the Judea Christian culture and bring about a Zionist state in Israel. Did it achieve this objective? Yes. In fact, after this war, Israel, in its present form, was reinstated under the protection of Britain. And then interestingly enough, a third world war, a Middle Eastern war involving, involving Judaism and Islam. And spreading internationally. Well, here's another quote, uh, just in case people don't like that quote. Massini with Pike developed a plan for three world wars, so that eventually every nation would be willing to surrender its national sovereignty to a wo- to a world governor. The first war was to end the Tsarist regime in Russia. The second to allow the Soviet Union to control Europe. The third world war was to be in the Middle East between Muslims and Jews, which would result in Armageddon. Interesting. Now, how were they going to do it? Let's read what Albert Pike wrote about these wars and uh, how they were going to be uh, unleashed. Here I quote: "We shall unleash the nihilist and the atheist, so the destroyer and the atheist, and we will provoke a formidable social cataclysm, which, in its horror, will show clearly to the nations the effect of absolute atheism." origin of savagery in the most bloody turmoil. Then everywhere the citizens obliged to defend themselves against the minority of revolutionaries will exterminate these destroyers of civilization and the multitude disillusioned with Christianity will receive the pure light through the universal manifestation of the pure doctrine of Lucifer. The destruction of Christianity and atheism both conquered and exterminated at the same time. Wow, what a clever plan. So you rub the two systems which you create up against the other. You create atheism as an antithesis to the Judeo Christian culture. You have these two clash until they rub each other up and then out of that you will get a new world order where you have a new religion which is far more esoteric and actually honest. Say, isn't that a rather clever plan? Well, it's very successful. That is why Ordo Abcao, Ordo Abcao is the, the verse, if you like, that uh, Freemasonry uses. This is one of their documents, remember, that I photographed in a Masonic lot. And Weishaupt is the father of Jacobinism. You will remember that we spoke about that in Revelation chapter 11. And Jacobinism was the power that propagated the French Revolution. And we did this in Revelation chapter 11, where the Bastille was stormed, liberty leading, the goddess of reason was enthroned instead of Christianity. So Christianity was removed and another reign uh, the monarchy was deposed, and Louis and his wife lost their heads. The beheading of Marie Antoinette, and that put an end to that monarchy. Then Robespierre he headed the Jacobin clubs, and a reign of terror commenced, which, in its bloodshed and its violence, rivals anything that we have seen today. Uh, The great philosopher, if you like, of the French Revolution was Voltaire. Now, you can look it up in any Encyclopedia Britannica. They will tell you who Voltaire was. He was a Jesuit. They will say, of course, he was a renegade Jesuit that left the Roman Catholic Church to write against it. No, no, no. He was just playing the role perfectly. Because they were setting up an antithesis. Do you remember the promise that a Jesuit makes? That I will take either side and do it perfectly as long as in the end the mother church wins.
0: So, as you can see, it all comes down to subterfuge, deception, counterintelligence, and the process of trying to bring order into the chaos. And ultimately you can see that there's a lot of different competing agencies at work that are trying to bring about this vision for a new world order. And you can see that there's a, a Chinese Russian confederacy that's really starting to take bloom within banking and with industry and within the different kind of military maneuvers. And then with Biden in the White House it's interesting because you know we're going to see how his handling of China is. It looks like they're going to continue to grow their military might and to add more reactors and done. We were just experiencing a period of time when we were energy independent, but I'm sure that Biden will turn all that back. And we were discussing how the the statue of Albert Pike that sits there in Washington, D.C. was torn down by rioters and the Antifa guys when he erased that little piece of history for us. And Trump swore to put it back up. I don't know if he had time to do it, to replace that Albert Pike statue, but it's curious to see whether Biden will replace it and put it back the way it was or how that will go. But as we're um, moving forward in these episodes we will be taking a look at a lot more information and you can see that we have a lot of you know a lot of a long ways to go and you can see how uh, with Walter Veith, how he kind of brings the whole historical loop full circle for us back to our, our original episodes where we were trying to show you the interrelationship between the Jacobins and the Illuminati and how they pushed over the monarchy and destroyed it and ultimately made way for the Jesuits to be re- restored and in 1813, so that the Illuminati would kind of go out of, out of existence, but their plans and their their machinations would continue to go forward as the move towards freeing slaves and the revolution in Haiti took on a racial connotation when the Haitians killed all the white people that were there and their move towards revolution um, and it, they wanted to create a world where they could have a black revolutionary communist regime if you will, and they didn't want to have any white people, and, and so ultimately this, these Kind of are the different echoes of the same liberation doctrine that you're hearing coming across today in a lot of our news reports where they're the, the communists and the provocateurs who want to, who are really imperialists because as they try to fight like Antifa and BLM and anti-racists as they try to fight to bring America down and destroy its nationhood, ultimately they're just doing the work of imperialism or internationalism or globalism or communism, however you want to look at it, before globalism and internationalism and communism was imperialism, which just assumed to have authority over the, the the whole world. And so it's this kind of papal monarchy that the Jesuits serve, who empower dictators like Mussolini and Hitler and who empower uh, kings and monarchs like um, George Third or whoever would be the most effective way. So that's why you know the, uh, the Catholic Church has often used dictators or fascists, and it seems to be their most direct line of making headway in their advancement of counter Reformation theology and ultimately this is what you saw in the, the Bartholomew's Day Massacre when the Medici Queen allowed for there to be a secret slaughter of the, the Huguenots. So we're going to see this again and again in history, this kind of deception I mean how could you get these um, these poor Jewish people in, into ghettos in Germany and then have them bring their suitcases down to the train stations where they would separate everyone throw them onto trains or throw them on a train to then separate them. And just just this process of lying and duplicity to advance a cause. And and you can see that, that Albert Pike was one of those individuals who was planning well in advance how these camps in Dachau would be set up. So you can see that uh, it's easy to dismiss, it's easy to have this kind of cognitive dissonance where you can't practically relate to the terror of the sheer magnitude of such a horrible uh, dilemma that these Luciferians would um, create instruments of, of uh, damnation and destruction and war and um, that's exactly what you see in orders like the, the Order of the Skull and Bones and with these high Freemasons and, and the Palladian Rite and their connection with the Illuminati with uh, Giuseppe Mazzini and ultimately we'll do some more um, about Car Karl Marx, too, when we tie this in, because Karl Marx was also a, a Luciferian and was also someone who was tutored by um, Peter Becks who was a Jesuit so you have this connection between Peter Becks and Karl Marx and also this tie between um, like we said earlier the Civil War, Skull and Bones, Order of Yale and the, ra- the rise of Mormonism and the, the creation of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, the Ku Klux Klan all with Albert Pike and Pierre de Smidt who was also a Jesuit. So th- these kind of topics are, are deep occult history that not a lot of people have a lot of information about. And that's why we like to discuss them on here, to, to share and to, to help proliferate this knowledge. And, and it gives you these footholds where you can begin to do your own research and to kind of begin to find out the truth of history. And, and when this is revealed to you, then you can understand where we're at and where we sit here. Um, it looks like we're, we're facing a third world war with China and the target will be to destroy Islam, and Zionism or the, the state of Israel and Christianity. So that's something America has to to take into account here as a country who was historically Protestant. So anyway, we're going to end this part one. We'll probably come back and do another segment about Albert Pike in order to kind of tie it up. You can be sure that we'll be back again to do another part, another segment of the, the life and the controversial doctrine of Albert Pike and um, we hope to see you back at Looking Glass Forum.